Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Matthew 18. A portion of this is mentioned in Matthew 18. We would not say it's a parallel passage, but it is a, a couple of verses are similar. In Matthew 18, 12 to 13, it says, How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray? Doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeth that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. That's a great Bible principle. We're going to look at Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. But think about the importance of rejoicing over one that's brought back into the fold. You know, we, we, we love numbers, but when someone comes back from a broken life or a life of problems, we have to rejoice in that. Um, tonight, Lloyd and I had some good visits. We visited a family we used to go years ago and came, showed up Sunday, and then we got to see the Howell family, and they're struggling physically, and we went to see Francis Arnold. And since I've been here, I've just visited lots of people. Some people I visited twice, sent them cards, called, text, and some just won't come back. I guess a year, it's been a year now, and so maybe they're not coming back because the virus is about over. But when someone does come back, how are we supposed to respond? Praise the Lord. You know, we got them back into the fold. And so let's, let's um, keep seeking for those that have been hurt. And I don't know any of the stories, so I just know that they tell me there were 30 people or so in our directory that used to go here and haven't been coming, so pray for them. But anyway, we're in Luke chapter... 15. And remember, parables are not true stories, but made-up stories to illustrate truth. They're identified often by the words like and as. The kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus would make up a story to answer a question, and we know in Matthew 13, we know the reason. And I'm going to repeat a few of these things until you memorize it, but in Matthew 13, 10, and 11, he tells us why he uses parables. It says, and the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou to, unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, or heaven, but to them it is not given. And so uh, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are different. Kingdom of God is a, a spiritual kingdom. We're part of that. Angels are part of that. But the kingdom of, of heaven includes lost people and everyone. And it's not for them to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. It's, it's for us to understand. It's amazing to me how a lost person cannot understand Scripture. Sometimes you witness to somebody and you explain it thoroughly and they understand it, and then a few days later you see them again and they can't really remember it anymore because the devil just sort of plucks that seed away and causes them to forget. And so uh, it's important for us to remember that uh, we, we have a spiritual teacher the Holy Spirit living inside of us, teaching us and, and reinforcing what we've been taught. But when you study a parable, remember, never get caught up in all the little details. There's one main truth, one main truth in a parable. A lot of details can cause you to get confused. I've heard people say more erroneous thing about, things about parables than anything else in the Bible because they miss the main truth. Luke, of course, our Gentile physician, is the one who writes this parable. And it's, it's really one parable, parable, it's threefold. And we find here the lost sheep, one of a hundred, was carelessly lost. 
And then we're not going to look tonight, but the lost silver, one of ten, was blindfully lost. And then we'll look at the one of two sons that was willingly lost, decided to leave purposely. But the main truth is God's concern for one who is lost. And we can't forget that. God's concern for one. You know, uh, when you pastor a church, and there was a time I had 800 people in my church in Okinawa. And it's easy to think, well, we're packed full. People are getting saved. and We're baptizing every Sunday and think like that. And to lose sight of the fact that one person somehow got hurt and is not there. And so we made it a point to seek those people out. And as a pastor, I make mistakes, so I would always apologize. I don't remember what it was for, but there were times I've had to do that. Uh, you know, I picked on Jim Sonny. I said, Brother Jim, you still love me? He said, I do. I said, it takes grace, doesn't it? He said, yes. But I was teasing about the Cadillac converters that he's trying to sell. Uh, and he knows I was teasing. But anyway, we, we have fun. But sometimes you hurt people. Sometimes you don't mean to. And you have to be sure that you don't offend anyone. You know, the Bible talks about offending people and how serious it is. As a pastor, we have a lot of responsibilities to not, to not offend people. And the Bible said it's easier to conquer a city than to win someone back who's been offended. So if one of our people is out there and they've been hurt, we need to try to go out and seek them and get them back into the fold. And that's the teaching here. God's concern for one. You know, 2 Peter 3.9 said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so not only the one sheep who is part of the fold, but then the, the one lost person that, you know, uh, you want to see saved, and, and we have to be concerned for them as well. And so the reason he told the story is because the sinners of the story were really the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus was spending time with the publicans that hated, they hated the publicans because they were tax collectors and they worked with the Romans to collect tax and so the Jews hated them, especially the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and so they're, they're constantly critical of Jesus who spends time with them. But Jesus loves sinners. And Luke 5.29, remember Matthew invited a bunch of people to a banquet. Well, the Pharisees didn't do that, invite people and have Jesus come and speak, but he wanted to see people saved. And Jesus loves the unlovely. That's the thing about him. Um, and here we find the Pharisees and the Sadducees are murmuring. They're complaining. It says, they drew the, then verse 1, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured. Verse 2, they murmured. The word Pharisee, you know what the Pharisees were, separatists, extremely separated but lost. The scribes, the, the, the word scribe is a Greek word grammaticus, and that's our word, our grammar, our word grammar comes from that because they were writers. And that's where our word grammar came from. And so here they are, and, and they're, they're, they're complaining because he receives sinners and eats with them. Well, I like Jesus. <laughs> what a perfect, of course, we know he's perfect, perfect example of how we should treat sinners. And then he shall tell, speaks a parable in verse 3. And the, the, the interesting thing is that Jesus cared about the people no one cared about. Have you ever had the idea, well, I wish that guy just go to hell? I, my, my, when I was in middle school, I think I've told you I had a bully kid two years older than me in middle school. He was an early bloomer. He was 5'8", 140 pounds. 
in middle school, and I was five uh, four, about ninety pounds, and he constantly beat me up and stuff. And I hated that guy. Now, when he graduated from high school, he was still five eight, one hundred forty pounds. <laughs> so things changed, but I didn't get even. But about three or four months ago, you know, I was reading about loving your enemies, and the Lord just spoke to me and said, "What about him?" Are you bitter towards him? I said, well, Lord, that's been in middle school. The Lord said, and he doesn't speak in an audible voice. You know what I'm saying? He just pricked my conscience. Well, he's lost. So I've been praying for him every day for several months. And I say, Lord, help me to have compassion for him because I still can't stand the guy. And that's a tough prayer. And you understand what I'm talking about. And 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 Jesus loved his enemies. And he, what did he say? Be good to your enemies. That's, that's tough duty. In Matthew 5, um, 25, 46, notice Jesus, and we'll go back to Luke in a moment, Jesus' love for those that are unlovable. Um, in Matthew 5, 46, it says, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? It's easy to love people who love you. It's easy to love people who are good to you. But there's not a reward in that like there is a reward in loving people who are difficult to even be around. Now, it hasn't happened to me in this church, but every church I've ever pastored, there's times when I go to church and think, oh, no, oh, so-and-so, here he comes. You know? And, you know, whether it's a person who complains all the time or a person who, you know, is... It's just uh, repulsive in some way or another. And that's always the test for a pastor, where the Holy Spirit says you can't be a respecter of persons. You know, you, you, can't, you can't love one. Then you have the organ recital. You know, when someone comes up, oh, Brother Dan, my thigh bone's connected my knee bone, and they both hurt, and then my hip bone, and my back, my back. And you think, oh, no, here they come. You know, I, I know it's going to be all about their broken down bodies. And God could whip me right now because compassion makes the difference. So we have to constantly say, Lord, help me to have compassion. And Jesus was that way. That's why Jesus loved the sinners and loved the publicans. He knew they'd go to hell, and he understood the reality of hell. And so he cares. And so he's sharing this, and the interesting thing is the ones that really needed Jesus more than the publicans and the sinners were the publicans and the scribes and the Pharisees, excuse me, Pharisees and scribes because they didn't realize they were lost. Matthew realized he was lost, therefore he got saved. The adulterous woman, you know, realized she was wrong. You can't be saved until you realize you're wrong and repent. A lot of gospel out there today that doesn't really include repentance. Shame on any gospel preacher that doesn't talk about our sinfulness. Because that's something we need to realize. And the, the Pharisees really were the lost sheep. They thought they were the one, but they were really the 99. You know, the fair, excuse me, they thought they were the 99, but they were really the one lost sheep. But they wouldn't listen. Sheep were valuable for a variety of reasons in that day, for offerings, for food, for wool, and they were important animals, and Jesus showed the importance of one. And in verse 4, Jesus makes it kind of personal. He says, and when he hath found, he went out and he finds that, law, that sheep. And verse, verse 4 says, um, 
if you, go, if you lose a sheep, which one of you wouldn't go out and find it? And that's a, a rhetorical question because the answer is every one of them would have gone out and sought that sheep. And he's, he's, again, telling a parable because this is really about people and not sheep. It's really about why he's reaching the Pharisees, I mean the publicans and the sinners. It's not really about sheep. And then verse 5, excuse me, is what I wanted to point out. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. So obviously, the scribes and the Pharisees weren't right with God because they're not rejoicing in the salvation of Matthew or anyone else who's been saved. Jesus was spending time with people who had bad reputations. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, instead of being separated, they, they think they need to have isolation rather than separation. We're, we're supposed to be separate from the world. But, but, folks, we have to be in this world. I don't remember who, who said it, but I wrote it down years ago. It's not about um, being in the water in the boat. It's about not letting water in your boat. We have to be out. We have to be in the world. But we can't let the world rub off on us. You know, and we have to be careful that we're not like the world. So we have to reach out to people without doing the things they do. Years ago, I had a guy up in Saudi come up and said, Pastor, I, I go to the bars sometimes and I witness at the bars. And I said, he wanted me to say, you know, he, he wanted to know what I thought and I think he probably wanted me to say this is a good idea. And I said, well, I don't think that's a good idea. And I tried to let him down lightly and I said, you know, those people are available at other times and other places and they're not under the influence of alcohol. So it doesn't make sense to me. And he said, but I think sometimes we need to get, be like people. Paul was all things to all people. I said, but Paul wasn't in bars getting drunk or whatever was going on there. And I said to him something I heard years ago as well. You don't need to dig through a garbage can to get a good sandwich. Okay? You may find something in that garbage can. Years ago, I, we had a dumpster, and I was dumpster diving for something I dropped in by mistake. You ever do something like that? And a neighbor came by and said, is it that desperate, Dan? <laughs> and, I, and I thought, hey, I don't remember what I dropped, but it's been like 30 years ago. But, you know, you, you, can, you can maybe find something in, in the garbage can that's good, but is it really worth the smell and the foul junk you get all over you? Of course not. And you cannot, you cannot spend time uh, in a situation like that without it harming you. So we're, while our boat has to be in the water, we don't have to let water in the boat. you know. And so we have to be careful because we can't say to sinners, I don't want to talk with you, you're a sinner. That's called isolation. We're not called to isolate ourselves from people. I had the biggest challenge. We had a, in Okinawa, we had a youth group. And Al Allshouse was my assistant. He was a youth pastor for a while. And we had kids from Okinawa Christian School in our youth. We had a Christian school, and those kids were in our youth. And we had the homeschool kids, and then we had the, the two public school high schools kids in our youth group, and they're all mixed together, and it wasn't working real well. Because <laughs> the public school kids, some of them were rough. Of course, some of the Christian school kids are, too. You know how that goes. And so we had all these kids, and we're trying to make harmony, and it's really difficult. And some of the people who are real more strict in the church pulled their kids out of the youth group, and their, their, their statement was, I don't want my kids around those kind of people. And they'd come by in my office, and I'd say, but listen, 
Why don't you explain to them that those people need the Lord and need to grow and they could be the good influence? You know, they don't have to do what those kids are doing. I don't think it's a good idea to pull out from something. You have to be strong enough to be the one of influence. You know, uh, I want to be a person of influence. I, when I walk into a group of people, I want to be the one that stands out. And I don't mean that for attention. I mean, I want them to know about Jesus. And if they're all lost and they're all messed up, I want to be the influencer. I, I don't want to be the one who is influenced. And there's a certain point in our life where we have to grow to where we can be the positive influence in the world, in our neighborhood. But you can't, you can't ignore your neighbors because, well, that one's a drunkard and, you know, that one has a trash yard. That's not how God operates. Jesus would go and reach out to them because Jesus cared. <clears throat> and Jesus says, uh, what man of you, in verse 4, that, that makes it personal. In other words, all you have sheep, and if you lost one, you'd go after it. And so that's the main truth, you know, that, he, that you go after, after those lost sheep. Now, he takes the sheep and he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. I like Isaiah 9, 6. Shoulder, the shoulder in Scripture always represents strength. You know, the ephod on the priest's shoulder. Here, the, the man's, the shepherd's carrying the sheep on his shoulder. And what does Isaiah 9, 6 say? say the government of the world is on his shoulders. Do you know God's sovereign over Russia and China. I heard things today that we're going to close the only base we have near the border of China and Russia over in Afghanistan. And I thought, man, why are we closing that base? It's the only place that we can really hit them if they attack us, you know. And then I just thought, well, God, you're in control. You're in control. One day you're going to rapture the church, but you're in control. And it's, it's okay. I don't have to get worked up about it. I shut the news off so much lately. I don't want to hear the news anymore. Um, but, you know, and he throws the sheep on his shoulder and he's rejoicing. He's got joy because this sheep has been found. They grab the sheep and they put it on the shoulder and they hold the legs. Sheep were dumb. Did you know that? That's why we're compared to them. They're dumb. They're weak. They're followers. Foolish, helpless, just like us. And, you know, when we can't get, you know, move and carry the load, God just carries us. Puts us on his shoulders. Yeah, I remember in football, I had to, I was the skinniest kid on the defensive line, so I had to carry Mark Ochtenberg on my shoulder up a hill. He weighed 240. And I was 180. And I mean, it was everything I could do to get there. I said, once you lose weight or don't eat lunch, this is getting ridiculous. And I'm carrying him up the hill. And he wasn't fat. I just couldn't carry him. And, and I think of how the Lord can carry us with ease. With ease. It's nothing for God. You can depend on him. He can carry the government of the, the whole world on his shoulders. And he can carry any of, any of us on his shoulders. But after he finds the sheep, what does he do? He calls his friends, not the scribes and Pharisees, he calls his friends to share the joy. Verse 6, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then he says in verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which have no repentance. You know, the Bible says there's rejoicing in the presence of angels. 
in a parallel, another passage. I thought it's the angels rejoicing. No, it says there's rejoicing in heaven. The Bible says it's in the presence of angels. Who's rejoicing in the presence of angels? The Lord and all the people that have gone on before us. Those saints that were able to be with the Lord after sin was paid for. See, until sin was paid for, those Old Testament saints were separated from God until Jesus went to the cross. So there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. And the Bible says elsewhere there's rejoicing in the presence of angels. You know what it does for God when one person repents? It just makes his day. <laughs> makes his day. We, we tend to forget that God has emotions. Does God get angry? Yes, of course. Jesus was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So everything Jesus did, God did. Did Jesus weep? When he was a carpenter, I'll guarantee he was used to hard work. I'll guarantee he had a blister, and I'll guarantee he got hurt once in a while. The Bible tells us he was weary at times. Too tired to go on, he would just disappear and rest. He was 100% man, 100% God, yet he could not sin because he was impeccable. And, and yet we know that the feelings that God has are the feelings that Jesus has. But he, he, the, the, the people who repented were not the scribes and Pharisees. You know, the, those who think, here, here's something to remember. When you always, not you necessarily, but I'm using the word you generically. When you think that there's nothing wrong in your life and you're always right, you're probably the one in need of prayer. You remember that spiritual? It's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my brother or my sister. It's me, oh Lord. I used to fight with my sisters. I mean, I had four sisters. And the two older ones, they'll tell you, it took the whole family to contend with me. And my two sisters, my one sister could beat me up till I was about 13. She's 5'11 and uh, just a big, strong girl. And uh, I was smaller than her. And she wouldn't take anything off me. She belted me and gave me a fat lip one time. I'm sure I deserved it. But I used to get mad and think she's so wrong. And I'd say to my mom and dad, she's wrong. And my dad would always say something like, it's interesting, Danny, is what he called me. You fought with Diane three days ago and she was wrong. You fought with Pam today and she was wrong. You got on Randy's nerves the other day and he was wrong. And I had that Lindberger cheese effect. You know what I mean? The guy who says, man, it stinks in this room. And then he goes outside and said, it stinks out in the lobby. And then he goes outside in the parking lot. The whole world stinks. And someone said, the problem's right under your nose. You got Lindbergh cheese under your nose. You know, you don't realize it's right under your own nose. And so these folks didn't realize they were lost. The tax collectors did. The sinners did. And the sinners came to repentance. Well, let's look at the application to our life. And I know you don't have time to write all these things down here, but we're going to go through them fairly quickly and spend some time on the second one. But the first one is we should seek sinners like Jesus did right out John 20, 21. You can do that later. But John 20, 21 says, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. So if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to reach out to the downtrodden, to the worst of the worst. We're, we're going to have compassion for people.
you like my body I'm praying for. I thought, what would, how would I react if one day he called me up and said, hey, I got saved? Would I rejoice or say, oh, man, he's going to be in heaven? <laughs> yeah. and, and sometimes, you know, in politics, we've had such a hot political season, worse than ever. You know, it's hard to pray, God, save this one and that one. You know? Um, I, I could never, I never liked Muhammad Ali. I, I'm, in, I know I'm wrong for disliking him because I should have the compassion and like him, but, you know, he was a draft dodger and his faith I didn't like. And so when he would talk his trash, people thought it was great. And I thought, man, I wish they wouldn't even inter- interview that guy, you know? And then later in life, as I matured, I thought, you know, why don't I have compassion for a guy like Muhammad Ali? He's going to go to hell. Maybe he's in hell now. I don't know that he ever got saved. But the Bible says, even when it comes to wealthy people who are arrogant, we're still supposed to have compassion for them? That's difficult. Because if they, if they, if they gain the whole world and lose their own soul, what does it matter if they were rich for 75 years in this world, if they end up in hell? So we ought to realize how much better off we are than all the lost people out there, you know. Uh, they're, 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 they're hopeless without Christ. They're helpless without Christ. I, I meet people all the time. All they know how to do is make money. It's all about making money in my home, in my car, and I, I can't stand that talk of materialism. Someone who's very close to me always talks about their possessions, and I want to just say, you know, I don't care about your possessions. You know, in, in five or ten years, you'll probably be gone, and all those possessions will be left behind. I don't say that to him, but I think it's so sad. Now, 2 Corinthians 7.10. And here's the thing. A lot of people act as though they uh, repent, but really true repentance is a change of heart. It's not just regret. Whenever someone's caught, you always notice how someone's caught, they ask for forgiveness. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, that's just Regret. True repentance is is coming clean and repenting and admitting the thing, even if you're not caught. Everyone who's caught is always sorry. Watch these crime shows. I like these DNA. I remember Forensic Files when it first came out. I was loving that stuff. I had a degree in criminal justice. I wanted to be a detective, and so I ate that up. How they'd get a little speck of blood, catch the guy. But so many of them were so sorry when they got caught. When they got caught. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10 because true repentance is, is different. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 10. And, and look what it says. Verse 9 says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. He was God. Paul's grateful for godly repentance. But look at verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance till salvate, to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. See, people of the world are sorry when they get caught. But unless they truly repent to God, they're going to die and go to hell. True repentance means change. The word actually means turnaround. 
And I'll tell you, we're going to be surprised when we stand before God. You know, we're going to be witnesses at the great white throne judgment, the Bible said, and God afterwards is going to have to wipe the tears from our eyes. Can you imagine being there and seeing someone who professed Christ stand before God and God says, I never knew you? That's, that's to me, is going to tear us up. The Bible said there's always wolves amongst the sheep. There is always tares amongst the wheat. There's always wolves amongst the sheep. Right? All those little phrases and verses say the same thing. There's always someone in there that looks the part. Sometimes you can you know they're lost, like the, the wolf, you can recognize the wolf, but the tares look so much, it's called Darnell, and Darnell looks so much like wheat. And, you know, there, I'm certain that in every church in the land there's probably been people who were attending and lost. And I always question when I meet someone on visitation or I'm handing out tracts or whatever, and... Uh, you know, you begin to talk to them. Oh, I'm saved. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I was saved when I was five. My mom uh, told me about it, and I went forward. And I prayed a prayer. Okay? And I was lately been reading stuff and just reminded of the fact that it's a heart change. It's a heart change. A lot of people think, well, I prayed this. Some of them don't even understand what they prayed. By their fruits, ye shall know them. The Bible said, old things are passed away and all things are become new. So when someone says they were saved and they don't go to church and they don't read their Bible and they don't pray and they don't live right, you have to scratch your head and say, God, something's amiss here. Something's wrong here. And you all know someone like that. He says, I, I was saved. Well, I love Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a verse I always share with someone after they've prayed the prayer. Go back to that verse when you doubt it. But I know that the Bible said of the heart, two verses 9 and 10, 13, 9 and 10, make it clear the heart has to be involved in this. It's not just something you say, it's something you mean. A lot of people know facts about the Lord, but that hadn't moved 18 inches down into the soul. And that's a problem. You know people like that. I know people like that. And we have to have compassion for these kind of people because they have not, truly not repented. Now, I have some other things in here to highlight. Luke 24, 47, that's the contents of the gospel. Um, and to write out your salvation and so forth. You can do that if you'd like to later. And if you don't have all the, I mean, we're, we've got 20-some, we've done this 20-some weeks. We have a lot of copies out there, and I can always get you copies if you want to catch up on the parables. But uh, the, the, we, study, we study these parables to help us grow and learn. You know, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word. And uh, I didn't give you a chance to ask questions, but if you have one tonight, we're a little early. It's 10 till. Uh, if you have a question tonight, I'll be happy to answer that. Or a testimony. So every Sunday night, we're going to start testimonies, starting this Sunday. So we'll you know, give you a chance to have testimonies. But right now, you can share a testimony as well, or a Bible question. All hearts clear.